two-thirds of us who came from a dysfunctional past how to use the workplace as a laboratory for emotional healing, which will absolutely improve people's experiences at work and in their careers. Friends, um, who are listening and, and watching us, welcome to WorkPod. Today we have a, a wonderful guest and, and a fascinating story and, and couldn't wait to get in. We have Susan Schmidt, uh, she's a Senior Vice President at Applied Materials and an author to a fascinating book, um, Healing at Work, and we'll talk about the book and Susan's journey. So before that, Susan, welcome to the show and um, love to know what makes you tick, love to know your background, your journey as a leader. Well, thank you for inviting me on. This is exciting to, to be talking with you. And I mean, in a nutshell, I have been a human resources professional my entire career. Uh, that is now over 33 years. And I've had the privilege of working in three Fortune 500 companies. One of those today, Applied Materials, is a Fortune 200 company based in Silicon Valley. And uh, just uh, I think I've been in just about every job there is in human resources. And I joke with my friends and family that my middle name is HR. And uh, I've also had the chance to work across industry, inside the uh, U.S., outside, and uh, that is me professionally. Interesting. And and um, what brought you to this world of HR? Uh, you know, I remember when I started college, I was pre-vet. And while I did well in all the science courses and math courses, I took a psychology course as a freshman and then ended up taking a course in industrial organizational psychology as a junior and realized that my passion was really all about people. And uh, after I graduated from college with a double major in psychology and French, I decided to pursue my master's degree in industrial organizational psychology, which by the way, was an excellent mix of quantitative and qualitative, both in terms of people, but also looking at um, you know, how people show up at work every day and bringing in the whole analysis and analytical perspective as well, which led me to my first job, which was as a compensation analyst back in the late 80s. Um, so over your tenure as an HR leader or as a, um, in, in, in this HR vertical, how has, how has the industry evolved uh, from your vantage point? Because oh now, now we hear a lot from, I think World Economic Forum is saying the work is changing. There is a lot of emphasis on the, 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 the there's a lot of talk around the future of work, emergence of automation in, in, in workplace. So as an HR leader, how has the world of HR evolved? Can you, if you can walk us through that? Oh, do you have a couple hours? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, the, the world of HR has absolutely been on a significant evolution. You know, when I started in HR, a lot of people still thought of HR as personnel, personnel administration, and, you know, very program process oriented in terms of the work of HR. Uh, but over time, you know, moving into the 90s, that's when we all started to move towards the model that, uh, that many adapted, which was shared services, centers of expertise, and HR business partners. Uh, but what's been interesting recently is just this acceleration of inflections that have huge implications for people and organizations and cultures. And so I think the role of HR has never been more important than it is now. I think HR has always played an important role, uh, but it has absolutely changed over time. And so now where we are as a, a global society 
and uh, in working in our companies and wanting our companies to be successful, there's never been more need for strong HR leadership capability uh, throughout the whole throughout the whole industry, all of our industries. I, I think that there's never been a greater need. And to your point about last year in 2020, with the global pandemic, which essentially changed and disrupted everything that we knew. And uh, you know, going forward is how do you shape and create the organizations of the future that are gonna be competitive, that are gonna be able to create great market value in an environment where the talent supply of the future is very different than the talent supply of the past. And so, um, gosh, I, there are just, uh, I mean, we could probably spend the whole podcast just talking about this alone. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. So um, I think you, um, you brought up an interesting point about the pandemic. I think last year had been a pretty interesting year for leaders, for industry designers, for organizational leaders who are. And I think uh, if if you look at your organization, it's it's like a it's like a diverse town in its in itself. It's a it's 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 all across. It's globally spread. So when when you look at um, how has the year been from from your vantage point. Um, what are some of some of the learnings that that you have incurred over the last one year? Well, for sure, what we learned immediately was that we could be incredibly adaptive because we literally sent everybody home overnight. Hmm. And you know, so you think about um, I think I think that might be Josh Burson who talks about this, that the change, how we think about change of the past that, you know, driving change and change management in companies is a multi-year endeavor. We've learned that it's actually possible overnight. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the acceleration of change and our ability to, to um, literally turn everything upside down within 24 hours is possible. So that's one thing that I think, think is absolutely a learning. I think the other thing that we learned is how resilient people are you know, to, to literally go, and, and of course, many people came back to work immediately. You know, our industry is in the essential, was considered an essential business as in the semiconductor industry. And so while we send everybody home overnight, we very quickly realized that, you know, we're an essential industry, we need to get people back. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the resilience of people to, to come together and work through a lot of uncertainty, a lot of fears around the health implications, obviously, mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, it's really it was really remarkable to see the the strength of people and the willingness to adjust and adapt and to do whatever they could to, could to support the company was was absolutely um, incredible. And, you know, so that was a major you know, I knew people were resilient. But when you see people in the middle of a significant um, transformative inflection in terms of how companies work, figuring it out and problem solving and coming together and working together for the good of the customers and the good of the people uh, was really, really just an amazing experience. So obviously the implications as we think about going forward is how does this new world change how we work? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as far as the, uh, the world of virtual, the world of hybrid arrangements, and, and obviously there are certain roles that are absolutely required to be on site as well. And so I think we're in a really creative phase to tell you the truth, uh, which can be a little bit unsettling for people that want more certainty. Um, but I think that we're in a creative stage of looking at how can we take advantage of the lessons learned last year 
how can we leverage that going forward, recognizing that uh, there are new ways of interacting and, and connecting, but also recognizing that we many people have the human need of being with people together mm -hmm. in collaboration uh, endeavors, in innovation endeavors. Um, you know, so I think we're in a really creative phase right now. And I think a lot of companies are, we're all balancing similar things depending on what country we're in uh, and where the pandemic is, whether, you know, case rates are going up or case rates are going down to be thinking about, you know, a phased approach to the, the new world, a phased approach to the future of work, if you will. And, you know, the, the planning of how do you bring people, more people back to campus, hmm. but still all the protocols around health and safety and masks and social distancing, et cetera. But then how do you accelerate being able to get people back as your, um, your vaccination rate goes up, the case rates are going down in certain cities. We're tracking obviously all that every day. But then longer term, how do we want to think about the future of work? And so that, I mean, it's, I, I think it's a creative experimentation phase, to be honest. Um, I think that companies that figure out how to do this well are going to win the talent market and uh, are going to be the employers where great talent want to go and work and stay. And uh, so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think about what we're facing. It's not a problem to be solved. Hmm. I think sometimes we think it's a problem to be solved. It's not. It's a tension to be managed. And the tension is that whatever the business needs are and employee needs. And there's no right or wrong answer. And every company and industry is going to have to figure out what makes the most sense for them. But sometimes we get into this problem solving. Yes, no, it's either this or it's that. It's more of managing the tensions of, you know, certainly many companies are going to require people to be on site to get work done, that the role requirements require it. But then how do you balance it with employee needs? And we know from our internal as well as external studies, people want more flexibility. Mm. Majority of people want some kind of a hybrid working model. And so it's how do you figure out how to do that while still meeting the business needs and recognizing that not everybody can work in that model, um, but being creative about how we think that through. And, and that's essentially where we're at now coming, coming. I wouldn't say we're, we're certainly not out of the pandemic uh, by any stretch of the imagination as we look at different countries and what's happening. Interesting. And the and, um, role of technology has, has really evolved over, over the last year. So I'm curious because... Um, People, we are social beings, so we 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 get our adrenaline rush. We get our all like all the chemical boost from the social interactions that that we enjoy. It the year has been brutal for our social sort of our social being. So when you plan for this future uh, future organization uh, going through this um, timely untimely hiccup, how do you see um, or what do you see as a technological shift? that organization, not necessarily yours, but, but in general, should see going forward um, or, or, should, or should brace for it at least? Yeah, well, I mean, we all learned to really appreciate our technology and our, and our IT organizations over the last year for sure. And, uh, you know, shout out to uh, Applied Materials Global Information Systems team, our GIS team. Uh, and I'm sure others feel the same way about their, their IT partners. Uh, but, you know, we obviously became much more comfortable operating in a virtual world. Uh, you know, and, and the, the ability to leverage technology and, and, and actually the providers of the technology have really upped 
the capabilities, uh, depending on what platform you're using. Uh, we're a Microsoft Teams company, and, and that's our, our primary um, our primary platform. And so seeing the evolution of the technology to be even more adapted to the, the virtual experience um, is really pretty cool. And now that we're getting more and more people back on campus, depending on their roles, uh, figuring out how do you how do you really run effective hybrid meetings? And uh, we just came through a, a week of our strategy meetings and some of the leaders and team were in the, the headquarters office. Others were virtual. I was a virtual uh, participant, but the technology in the teams and how they managed, uh, you know, the camera going on, whoever's speaking and creating an experience that felt like we were in many respects in the same place. Um, there were a couple little things that we have to fix, but overall it was really quite impressive. And so I think going forward, actually was just listening to an amazing um, expert this morning, and I'm, I'm going to be really embarrassed that I don't know his last name. Um, actually, let me pull it up so I can get it correct. We were listening to an expert today named Dr. Gleb. Um, I think he says it to, to, to Spursky. Hmm. And uh, he came to speak to our future of work team. Uh, about innovation with technology and how do you really take it to the next level? So I, I believe there's bias and I think it's mm -hmm. justified in many cases that innovation and creativity happens when you have people together, mm -hmm. spontaneous interactions, running into somebody in the cafeteria and bouncing ideas off of one another. You, you can't, it doesn't seem like you can replicate that through technology. He was sharing a couple of different ideas, um, and one of them I thought was really interesting was he talked about a concept called digital co-working, and uh, where you know you literally are digitally online. You maybe shut off your uh, your video, so you're working, but you're in a room, virtual room with people with no particular agenda, where people can interact more casually, more spontaneously. Now, does that replace face-to-face -face innovative work and bringing teams together for collaboration? No, um, but I think the technology and the evolution of the technology functionality is gonna continue to help us find ways to do things that feel more um, spontaneous. I, I mean, I think that it will be a natural place where, where we go. And, uh, you know, so I think there's that piece. The other piece of technology, which is, you know, obviously a huge lever for companies is as we, you know, I really, we talked about the talent war, you know, 25 years ago, we, we have seen nothing like a talent war until now. Hmm. And so the only way we're going to be successful is by figuring out how do you shift the, you know, the low value work that people do as much to technology as possible, productivity through technology to then be able to leverage bringing in people to do the high value important work that, that obviously only people can do. So, you know, technology is, it, it is core to everything that we're doing, both in terms of how we're interacting, collaborating, creating, innovating, uh, connecting, coaching, mm -hmm. mentoring, all the different things we need to do. And then also thinking about the technology enabler in terms of more and more productivity and how how we get smarter and smarter and shift work into automation and technology. So, um, and thank you for sharing that. So, um, back to the last year. As a leader, how has that year impacted you personally as a leader? Well, 
you know, in some respects, it was a very hard year for many who were impacted by COVID, uh, who became ill. And, you know, so from a leader standpoint, I will say I could not have been more proud about how our company navigated that and still continues to navigate the pandemic. Because, you know, for me as an HR leader, to have the company putting people and people's safety and health as the overarching priority on every decision that we were making. Uh, it may, obviously made me incredibly proud to work for Applied Materials. And as an HR leader, it really elevated um, even more so how everything boils down to the people in our organizations, how they're feeling, what are we doing to support them, what kind of practices can we put in place? We instituted, like many did, a variety of different ways to connect with our people managers, to connect with our employees, to have live discussions with them about what was happening, different policies that we were implementing to enable bringing people back. Um, you know, it was in many respect, um, you know, leader, leadership is hard in good times. It's even harder in challenging times. And just so to have the privilege of working with the leadership, the executive team and our CEO that I had, it was a very rewarding experience. I always knew that we were going to make the right decisions, um, keeping the, the safety and health of our people at the very, you know, the center of, of what we needed to focus on. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if I think about how did it change me? Um, it certainly, it certainly makes you really good at prioritizing. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, it's like all hands on deck and how do we still get the other work done that needs to get done? Uh, you know, so leadership, I feel like the HR leadership team that I'm a part of came together, um, a lot of connecting, a lot of collaborating, a lot of communication, uh, regarding what was happening, a lot of partnership with the executive team. I think it enhanced our, um, internal practices around communications with people managers. I think this is a huge uh, element of an organization that carries the weight of the world on their shoulders. Uh, everything falls on them. I always feel like they are the front line and, and I think it really um, reinforced how important the people management organization is within the company and finding ways to answer their questions to, you know, provide answers like, we don't know the answer to that yet. Thanks for asking it. We'll do our best to answer it. You know, it really built a, I would say a really incredible um, experience in partnership in terms of supporting the organization. So from a, from a personal, personal standpoint, I coincidentally had a trip planned back from uh, Santa Clara to Wisconsin where I had, um, I had a home base. I moved to Santa Clara for applied, but I still had a home base here. Both of my sons are in college in, in Wisconsin. And so I had a planned trip back literally days before the um, governor in California put the first shelter in, in, uh, shelter in place into yeah. effect. So I came back. I also, in February, before you know, it really hit the US in March, I got remarried. And um, <laughs> anyway, long story short, I had some really good things happen. I was able to be working virtually. One of my sons was here. And so to be able to really connect with him and have that time was really special. And I know that's true for a lot of people out there. I was talking to one of my colleagues yesterday and she was talking about how, you know, obviously 
the COVID and the pandemic and the impact on, on everybody was significant and hard. She was incredibly grateful that she got to spend time with her two college-age mm. students, two college-age sons, um, for a year. And, you know, so I think I think there was a, a, a shifting for a mm. lot of people, mm. including me, in terms of what really matters in life when you can't see family members, um, when you can't go into the hospital to be with a loved one because of all the protocols. Uh, when you have, unfortunately, a, a family member who passes away, either of COVID or something else, and you can't have a funeral with people coming together to support one another, you know, it, it really, it, it was a, it was a really significant year on so many different levels. And, and uh, so as a leader, I think, man, it, my, my heart hurt for some, some of our colleagues who mm. were in some of those situations. Um, but again, just, you know, always looking up and forward mm -hmm. and looking at how do we come away from this even stronger than we were before. And I think that is absolutely our mission is how do you leverage the lessons? How do you become an even stronger company? And, uh, and how do you, how do you move forward? But you gotta be flexible. You know, some mm -hmm. of our countries are experiencing some, some increases in case rates. Uh, some of our cities are as well. And, and so being flexible and, you know, we, it's been a, a leadership lesson in flexibility for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, um, so uh, what you're saying reminded me of this interesting story. So I was talking to one of the HR leader of a large, one of the largest uh, manufacturing organization. And I was talking to him, hey, how has this year been to you? And, 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 and he put it in a very interesting way. So shall you know what? We talk about culture a lot, right? So we talk about culture like even before pandemic whatever right it's just a cliche that we just talk culture and we understand and so pandemic taught me something very interesting so uh, he taught me something like a that organization also have something called spirit organizational mm -hmm. spirit so Love so it. so he said that when things uh, shut down and we were we are manufacturing i cannot imagine a manufacturing factory being off or a suite of factories being off but then when you when you see people and, and as a, I'm also a human being, so I also panicked, right? I have a family I need to protect and all that. Sure, I, I, I pretend to be leader many times, but deep inside I'm 90% human and 10% maybe leader. And said so when these things, uh, uh, when your entire sort of city is collapsing all around you, you see co-workers behaving in a way that you that culture cannot explain. None of the education can never explain. I think what how you are describing... So saying that I realize that my org, my org, my org has something called spirit that I've never seen before. And I, I think it. it's, it's, it. it's pretty fascinating. I love it. I think that's that, that's a beautifully chosen word and it really expresses what I saw. And, uh, you know, obviously India had some significant challenges uh, with COVID um, in the very recent past. And to watch the spirit of the leaders and the mm. employees, what they did was heroic mm. in terms of supporting colleagues and family members. And that is exactly what you're talking about, is that spirit of, of coming together, overcoming impossibly difficult situations, and finding creative ways to support one another. And uh, I mean, just heroic. I, I don't know how else to explain it. What what the colleagues, what our colleagues in India uh, took on and did mm. to support one another, and um, amazing. It's true. Spirit's exactly right. I love it. So um, uh, thank you on that. So um, 
now let's let's talk about the meat of the stuff and um, to our listeners and viewers so healing at work by the way fascinating book i have never freaking cried on a on a on a, on a it's supposed to be an organizational book and and I, when i was speaking I, i am a dad i have a daughter so it it's like i i think few chapters are pretty hard to run by if if you care and 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 thank you for sharing that i think it's 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 mind numbing to see leaders who make themselves vulnerable to the point and share with the with the community and 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 thank you thank you for for writing this book love to know what sparked you to write such a book oh my goodness well first of all thank you for reading it i i feel uh, very uh, privileged that you did that i always appreciate when someone actually reads it <laughs> um you know I, i at the very beginning of this uh, of this podcast you asked me about my my background and i shared it with you but what i didn't share with you but what i talk a lot about in the book is that what fueled my career success was an underlying belief that i wasn't good enough and and what i have found in working with my so many of my colleagues and in fellow leaders and in um employees and people managers is that uh many of us fall into this category of overachiever never feeling like we what we're doing is enough um never taking time out to really celebrate and acknowledge the achievements that we're having um incredibly hard on ourselves and in setting unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others and so you know i think the the inspiration for the book was a realization based on some research that my co-author and I've done that two-thirds of us two-thirds of us adults have experienced at least one adverse childhood experience when we were growing up uh adverse childhood experiences uh the acronym is aces the aces and the the 10 adverse childhood experiences are things like um physical emotional sexual abuse addiction in the family neglect uh mental illness um family member who's gone to jail there there are these 10 descriptors and the research shows that two thirds experienced at least one ace and sadly 40% of all of us experienced uh two or more and so the reality is is that many of us that come from a dysfunctional past that had one of those experiences and maybe not even necessarily one of those experiences but maybe an overly bearing parent or a critical parent you know there there's sort of a, a continuum of serious issues that happen uh to kids when they're little what well, what we don't realize and what i unfortunately and i hate to admit this but it's true don't like to admit is that 30 years of my 33 year career I was living what I call the unconscious wounded career path. Hmm. And what I mean by that is I was completely unaware of how much some of the experiences I had when I was little were actually affecting me every single day. And so what I realized too in working with so many leaders and colleagues is that when I I noticed that when other people were having strong negative reactions to something happening in relationship to a colleague at work, it was often an overreaction to the situation mm-hmm. at hand and i started thinking about i think that their reaction is being influenced by outdated scripts from their past mm-hmm. but let me let me say a little bit more about what i mean by that 
So when you grow up, and by the way, this is not about judging parents for doing something wrong. I believe our parents in many cases also came from a dysfunctional past. I think they did the best they did. Um, and it's also appreciating that many of us walk away from our childhood with some limiting belief about ourselves. Mine was, I'm not good enough. For others, it's, uh, I'm unwanted. Um, I'm not smart. I can't do anything right. You know, there's a whole continuum of these limiting negative beliefs. And what happened when we were little is that when something was happening in the family system or the family situation that was stressful, it would, you know, cause a trigger in, you know, so the trigger might be I'm in trouble or I'm being judged or criticized. The limiting belief pops right front and center in our head. And then we have a variety of different strategies and adaptive behaviors for how we navigate that situation or how we navigated it when we were little. For me, it was all about people pleasing and mm. being as good as I could. If I could, if I could just be as good as possible, the the you know the goody two shoes, the goody the good little girl, maybe my dad's anger and rage would would not explode on that particular day. And you know, so then I move into my career, and again, if if I get triggered at work and I all of a sudden feel like, uh oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not adding value. I immediately go into the old behaviors, people pleasing, mm. trying to do no work-life balance, trying to prove myself at work because somewhere along the line, and this is true for a lot of people, I unintentionally, unconsciously delegated the responsibility to people in authority to determine my value and my worth and completely unconscious to this. And so again, this is something that's very common for a lot of overachievers. And when I started really looking at this unconscious dynamic that was affecting me in so many negative ways, it, you know, here, here are some of the costs and, and I really want to get into the, the, the future and create the hope because I feel like I'm spending too much time on the negative. But the negative costs of the unconscious wounded career include uh, exhaustion, no work-life balance, um, never taking time out to have fun and enjoy and relax, never slowing down enough to do that. Uh, strain relationships with bosses and colleagues at work and oftentimes distant relationships with family members and failed marriages, health issues. I mean, the list goes on and on. And from a team standpoint, if you got all this happening, all this unconscious uh, past dynamic playing out in your team, your team's performance is not optimized. Mm -hmm. And so, what Martha and I, my co-author Martha Finney, the amazing Martha Finney and I did is we wrote Healing at Work in a way that teaches people how to use the science of neuroplasticity, which tells us that we can rewire our brains. We have the ability to reshape the neural pathways in our brain um, based on you know, the science of, of neuroplasticity. And we introduced the concepts of positive psychology as well. But ultimately, the, the very unusual proposition of the book is that for the two-thirds of us that had a, a dysfunctional past, mm -hmm. we can actually use the workplace as a laboratory for healing. And so, you know, the, the inspiration for the book is how do I help reduce the pain and suffering of so many of us in the workplace and in our careers so that we can be fully present and fully optimized in our, in our careers and in our workplaces. And so what we do is we take readers on a journey to teach them how to do this because the destination includes actually a much better relationship with colleagues and with family members, 
more work-life balance, much more centered, deep, uh, relaxed approaches to how we work. And possibly one of the most important benefits is that when conflict happens at work, rather than going into a triggered unconscious response, we are much more able to have in the moment present interpretations of what's happening, which leads to better choices, better decisions, better actions. And ultimately, you know, my secret passion is how do we shape cultures in a way where we can eliminate whatever toxicity exists, no culture is perfect, but how do we improve the experience of everybody in the company as we start to become more conscious as we step onto that conscious healing career path? So that was a long answer to your question about what inspired the book. But it was basically about helping to teach people how to reduce so much suffering and pain and stress and anxiety and worry and show them that it can be done in a whole different way. And then uh, that's the premise of the book. I think that's that that is um, pretty interesting. So one thing I, I was thinking about while, while reading the reading the book was, so it's a very it, it's taking in a very interesting journey, right? So it's 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 helping understand there's a problem. Then the, obviously you can you can find the healers with within your workplace. But uh, if you look at the organizational as such, right? I am most probably hired because I love the company, and I'm most probably leaving because I hate my surrounding, my either my manager or whatever, right? So, and, and most of us are a hostage to our work environment, right? If, if you go just by the stats as, as such, right? So with, with, that, with that mindset, if, um, if you make yourself vulnerable, if you make yourself as if a um, seeker of, of healing, wouldn't you expose yourself for further expo exploitation or neglect? By, by the surrounding and, and, and set back. So I, I'm curious, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and actually, um, it's a very perceptive question. Mm. But the answer is, you don't have to make yourself vulnerable. You don't have to let anybody in the, in the company know that uh, Martha and I coined a term called adult survivor of a damaged past, <laughs> ASDP. That's pretty nice. We right felt, you know, we felt like the, the, the terms that are out there to describe the two thirds of us that grew up in a dysfunctional home didn't really capture the breadth of how many of us are, are managing some something consciously or unconsciously that's affecting us negatively at work. And so the reality is you never have to let anybody know you're an ASDP. That, that is absolutely not the point. But what we are able to do is to, and I, I've talked about this a couple of times, but I'll, I'll expand on what I mean by it, using the workplace as a laboratory for healing. Mm. So here are some of the reasons why we feel so strongly that the workplace can be a place of self-acceptance, learning and discovery and practicing new ways of responding and not being so triggered and have so many negative reactions. There are several reasons. First of all, um, your company wanted you. You are the only person who got hired into that job or promoted into that job. So automatically, there's a positive emotion that comes in knowing that you were selected from everybody else to go and do that job. And also, if you think about the workplace, it's all about teams, people coming together, collaborating together, solving problems together. Theoretically, there's a lot of positivity that comes with the essence of the work that we do every day. We have an opportunity to build relationships. We have an opportunity to have meaning and purpose in what we're doing. Many of us get our identity through our work and you know it's a key part of who we are. We often many times join companies that stand for some greater purpose. And so there's all these, there's all these elements and actually 
Dr. Martin Seligman, who wrote a book called Flourish, talks about five things that are required to flourish in your life. Martha and I just adapted it to the workplace, but I basically just described his, his five uh, elements. The uh, shorthand acronym is PERMA, P-E-R-M-A. P is positive emotion. You need positive emotion to flourish in life. And you know, just by the fact your company wants you is an opportunity to experience mm -hmm. that positive emotion. Uh, e is all about engagement. So the workplace, every company, every HR leader, every business leader wants their employees to be engaged. Because if they're not engaged, they're gonna leave at some point, right? So companies are spending a lot of money on engagement surveys and what do we need to do to engage people? So E is the second letter in Dr. Seligman's model for flourishing. Uh, so PER is relationships. I already talked about their relationship opportunity, relationship building. Many friends are created through our work experiences. Um, that's uh, an option for us at work. P-E-R-M is meaning. We talked about meaning. And A is all about achievements. And so work is all about results and achievements. So just that the, uh, the, the ingredients to flourish using Dr. Seligman's model are absolutely available to us in the workplace. So that's the first reason uh, to think about when you're thinking about what do you need to do and why the workplace is a place for healing. The second element that I think is so critical is this opportunity to realize that if you did experience some negative event or series of events in your childhood that were negative, dysfunctional, either in the ACEs category, the adverse childhood experiences or something else, you have an opportunity to become aware of this unconscious wounded career path experience and the opportunity to simply step onto the conscious healing career path. And, and we teach a lot in the book, con unconscious wounded thinking, mm. conscious healing thinking, very different ways of looking at the same situation. That's the second thing. Thirdly, companies are investing all the time in the development of their people. Mm. And we're learning different skills through training programs that our companies provide to us that are applicable outside of work as well. Mm. How to have critical conversations, problem solving, um, building management capability, project management, you know, there, there's all these opportunities for learning and developing. And then finally, and there's probably more, but I'll just end there because we could go on and on with this. The other reason why the workplace is a great place to practice new ways of responding is that it is full of conflict. Mm -hmm. And conflict, um, in fact, you know, I love it that you got the book back there, but we depict conflicts as if it were a bumper car crash, two bumper cars facing off. So if you think about you know, two thirds of us walking around the halls of a corporate world who have some most likely unconscious set of experiences that are affecting us at work. We show up at work, we're interacting with other people who also are likely adult survivors from a damaged past and we're colliding into each other regularly. And unfortunately, when we're in that unconscious state, what happens is something happens negative. We take it to mean something negative about ourselves. We immediately go into all the, the negative beliefs about, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. You know, I, I can't remember the percentage, but it's a, there's a huge percent of people, more than 50% that believe that they could get fired. Mm. And so all these triggered reactions happening at work in these bumper car moments, what Martha and I do is teach people how to recognize when a bumper car moment happens and we get that physiological, emotional triggered response where our, our central nervous system says fight, flight, or freeze, 
that is the first clue that it's a moment of opportunity for healing, of having a different response, and actually starting to reprogram our brains so that we don't immediately go into the old ways that we responded. For me, it was not it was constantly working and trying to make things better and try, trying to constantly, you know, make sure everybody was pleased so that I could try to, you know, state off any negative perceptions of myself. And so we use the bumper car concept uh, to teach people how to experience a bumper car moment in a very different way. And we designed, I created a, a three-step process a proprietary process called the rapid power reclaim, which is a three-step process for what to do in the middle of a conflict when you know you've just had a, a negative physiological, emotional reaction to something or to someone and how to work through that. So we start building the new neural pathways. I can't think of a better place to practice conflict than at work because it's naturally happening. So you never as a person who has, you know, a past that's affecting them, I never have to talk with my employer or my colleagues about that at all. This is this is work ourselves on our own leadership journeys, on our own life journeys, of showing up in different ways and trying out some different strategies so that we can have a much more positive experience in our careers and in our workplaces. And, and so that, that's the opportunity. It's not about going and, oh, hey, manager, you know, I didn't realize this, but I, uh, I've actually experienced four ACEs, and therefore I'm going to have triggered responses. You don't, no, you don't have to do any of that. It's more about practicing these things um, in the concept that we teach through the book that allow you to do some things differently at work. I think that that's fascinating. So uh, I, I want your perspective on uh, – so. I think pandemic is, is, is a great example. So when I was reading the book, I was thinking about how would this book change in this new reality, right? So I was I was thinking about that now my my living room is exposed to work. Now my bedroom sometimes is exposed to work. Now, um, and many of the struggles as or many, many of those um, uh, unforeseen incidents are happening inside the house. Now I'm, I have to perform on the work. I have to... It's the same toxic environment plus work and I've been judged. Um, so it's putting a lot of undue pressure um, as if you're if you're a worker. So I'm curious how would uh, so how, what's your take on if if your worker is listening to this, how would they grapple with this book, uh, this reality? Yeah, I, it's a great question because the the reality is in you know even before the pandemic, people were getting emotionally mm. triggered at work. Mm. People were, were having all those negative costs that I described earlier without the added pressure of being at home, having kids at home that you're trying to manage for, for parents with kids at school age kids. Uh, it, you know, all the pressures get at, it's like a, it's like adding a ton of bricks on top of um, an individual who like myself is already extremely sensitive to not wanting to underperform. Mm. And so you have all these additional elements. It's like, like throwing the, the bricks onto the pile. It just puts the pressure more and more on us mm. so that when something's happening, it's very normal that when our, our, our fears come up, fear of judgment, fear of being excluded, fear of not fitting in, fear of not performing, fear that I'm missing something that's important, fear of not being able to be heard. What, whatever the fears are, it's like throwing gasoline on the fears with mm. something like the pandemic and all the related factors. Maybe a family member or yourself got sick. 
and you're, you know, the, what the fears do is lead us right into, oh my gosh, I'm going to get fired. Oh my gosh, my boss thinks I'm not doing a good job. Oh my gosh, you know, what am I going to do when it's time for kids to go back to school? How am I going to go back to work? And, you know, concerns of losing income, let alone promotion possibilities. Mm. Well, I think that the way to think about this from a, just an employee standpoint, anybody, any of us in the company, is that the pandemic added additional um, stressors on top of our normal uh, stressors. And so the unconscious responses very likely were, were mm. enhanced and, and um you know, enhanced and, and amplified. That's the word I'm looking for. And so, you know, we, we may on a normal day feel like, oh, you know, I'm an imposter or, mm -hmm. you know, if they find out I'm really a fraud or, you know, I'm keeping up this front. The pressure to do that when we're on the unconscious wounded career path, it's like, mm -hmm. it's like it'll just explode. It's just it's too much to handle. And so I think, you know, Martha and I are grateful uh, that, we've had the opportunity to come together and create this, this work with our healing at work book, because even more so than ever before with all the pressures that you were just talking about people that are coming in with these, um, our dysfunctional past, you know, kind of carrying along our past reality with us, uh, you know, unconsciously into the workplace. Now we can actually go, Oh, you know, and you know, if you read the book, we talk about um, Dr. Burns, uh, his 10 distorted ways of thinking. Mm. And uh, we start to unwind what's going on in a bumper car moment. And, and a lot of times the bumper car moment might just be happening in our own heads. Mm. Our inner critic narrative going on in our brains is going crazy. And so the book, as you know, teaches people um, some very pragmatic ways to manage those emotional triggers. And, and I, I think you're right. The, the, the likelihood and the amplification of the pressure that gets put on people to, to really pressure up on the limiting beliefs and the fears is, is just multiplied by a thousand in a situation like the pandemic. And, and if say now take the point of view of leader, right? So you are one of the leaders who understood, who have gone through, so understood what other, or at least could empathize with, 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 the worst of things, what's happening and what's going on and how to, you have healed through your own own sort of uh, painful ways. Now, when when you see other leaders, like how do you, how do you think other leaders um, to behave? Like what what is your, from this book's vantage point, um, what is your advice to other leaders who are listening to this? Mm -hmm. What is their role through this? Well, I had an opportunity yesterday to listen to two other amazing authors, Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick, who wrote, they've written several New York Times bestsellers. Uh, their recent book is called, I think it's their most recent book, Anxiety at Work. And uh, it, it's it's such a um, perfect time to be talking about mental wellness mm -hmm. in the work because of all the uh, the things we've talked about and the added stress and uncertainty with the pandemic and return to campus and all the things that people are thinking about. And, you know, so from a leadership standpoint, um, I'll talk about some of their great insights in a minute, but from a healing at work standpoint, the leader's job is never to pry, right? This isn't about saying, oh, you know, I see you're having a negative triggered response. Did something negative happened to you when you were little? No, that's not what this is about. But this is about an awareness and an understanding that two thirds of our employees are wrestling with some 
some of this um, and most likely unconscious impact from their past. Mm. And so, you know, one of the things that, that Chester and Elton said yesterday, I'm, I'm not going to remember everything exactly, was that the leader's role is to notice mm. when someone's, you know, showing up and they seem stressed and worried. Um, it's about, they, they also mentioned desensitizing, uh, or sorry, destigmatizing, pardon me, destigmatizing, um, you know, some of these things that go on for people, the anxiety and the worry and the stress that we talk about in our book, they talk a lot about anxiety. Leader's job is to, is to um, destigmatize that people are naturally dealing with a lot of anxiety right now. And then also they talked about normalizing it, that, you know, we all have our fears and concerns. Mm -hmm. And that if somebody is demonstrating some behavior that would suggest that they're stressed, it's just a conversation that that they suggested in their in their conversation with our leaders yesterday about um, just saying, hey, I noticed that. Is there anything I can be doing to support you? And so it's also about empathizing. That was the other point that they made from a, a healing at work standpoint and the work that we, uh, Martha and I are doing. There's also this responsibility of as a leader in shaping the cultures of our teams mm -hmm. and in finding ways to to um, uh, what's the right word to take away the charge from the bumper car moments. And so if two colleagues on my team are having a bumper car moment and, you know, tensions have gone up, emotions have gone up, you know, just even being able to say, Hey, I, it seems like we have a bumper car moment going on here. You know, let's talk about it. And again, we can do that without doing any kind of psychoanalysis or anything like that. I'm certainly not a therapist. I'm a career expert. But we can look at it through a different lens. And actually, uh, Oprah Winfrey and Dr. Bruce Perry have just written a new book called What, uh, what Happened to You? Mm -hmm. And that what we typically used to say in the past is, you know, what's wrong with that leader? Why are they acting like that? Uh, in their book, they talk about don't ask, you know, what's wrong with that person. Ask yourself, I wonder what happened to that person to, that they would behave this particular way. And so it helps us understand some context behind people's behaviors and also recognizing that most of us, and again, I put myself in the same category, are completely unconscious to how much that past is influencing us. I was unconscious to my need to try to prove myself to my dad. You know, as a little girl, my perception was that what I did was never enough. And, and there, therefore that managing the dynamic and trying to manage his anger transformed itself into my career where I was always trying to make sure that I was doing enough and always worried that a boss or a manager would think that I wasn't doing enough. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you know, people pleasing is a very dysfunctional way to live your life, frankly. You're not being authentic. People perceive it as manipulative. And, and it's, it's a very stressful place to be. And so from a leadership standpoint, it's really taking all these things into consideration and then, you know, helping to support people if they need support. And there are lots of different ways to do that. Well, I think um, rightly said, and and um, uh, and thank you so much for, for helping us understand Healing at Work. I think that, that's fascinating. So I was thinking about, uh, I, I was talking to Chris was uh, about this idea of negotiation and all that. And and he, he said a very interesting thing. He said, Vishal, you know what? Um, if people learn to manage their conflict, Everything in the world will be solved. He said. He said. It's just like the and I think what and and he said whenever I see uh, leaders and and people influencers talk about the importance of handling conflicts 
or mm-hmm. handling uh, as you rightly saying bumper car moments and what to do and what to and he said the, the entire society could come together to to work uh, and and it was it was it was mind numbing and fascinating to hear that and and thank you so much for playing your part in doing this yeah thank you no i i love that that is that like that's my secret mission to not only transform companies and you if you read the full book in the epilogue i talk about this <laughs> it's actually the opportunity is to transform societies as well because it is it is the supercharged negative reactions emotional responses to people that create all the you know shape the cultures shapes the experiences of people affects people when they go you know back to their families after working all day uh, i just think there's this huge 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 uh, global movement transform transformative opportunity to uh, to change how people experience certainly their careers and workplaces but absolutely cultures company cultures and societies i love it awesome so so now let, let's get on um, on on a, on a slightly fun part of of the conversation so we're calling it rapid fire so so this is how, you know how rapid fire works i'll i'll usher something to you and then you tell me a quick snappy response or a word that 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 you that that comes out sure so um should we start Sure, I can't wait. I feel like I'm on <laughs> Go so, for it. Uh, so, future of work. Exciting. Technology. Important. Leadership. Fundamental. Um, conflict. Opportunity. Culture. Personality. Hmm. Transformation. New possibilities. Disruption. New possibilities. Hmm. Um, jobs of future. Enhanced by technology. Empathy. Leadership requirement. Future of organizations. exciting healing at work <laughs> healing at work a whole new way to live your life that's 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 fascinating so um, thank you thank you for 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 helping us understand your perspective sure. so now now we are at the tail end of, of the conversation and in that i would love to um dig deeper on on your personal side on what has helped you successful so we ask all of our guests uh, to share some of the qualities and some of the traits that has helped them be successful or where they are today what what are those for you what are your traits that has really helped you be what you are today well it's actually a really good opportunity for me to talk about being an asdp all the gifts that we experience and learn from coming from a dysfunctional past And so I'm talking about myself but I'm talking about really anybody who's come out of a very tough background. And so the gifts that we get uh one we're incredibly good at reading a room. We can read uh what my friend Ken Wright calls the psychological geography. And you know so we always know what people are experiencing and feeling because of our own experiences. So we can read the 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 room read the psychological geography. Um an unbelievable work ethic. you know the, the people that have come out of a tough situation are incredibly um uh strong and resilient and are willing to work and to achieve you know there's just this um inner 
compass, inner drive that drives us to achieve great things. And uh, so I think there's this amazing um, force. You know, I, I talk to a, a lot of ASTPs in the work that I do, and they'll sometimes say, well, you know, my, my challenging childhood really challenged me to do even better, to prove people wrong. And so I do think there's that, that um, a little bit of a warrior mentality. I'm going to figure it out. I can handle anything. I've, mm. I've navigated complexity and stress in the past, and I can handle it in the future. So I think some of those things. Uh, and then I think the other thing, too, is, um, you know, I, I think certainly one of the gifts that I received from my, my background was learning how to build relationships and allies and, um, you know, so that that ability to partner within an organization has been key. And then finally, the last thing I would add in terms of my own personal journey is I have been incredibly blessed with what I call my my personal board of advisors. You know, I have God has put in, in my life teachers and mentors and coaches and experts and friends that I have never felt like I was alone on this journey. Even when I was stuck on the unconscious career path, mm. I had amazing support, people I could turn to for guidance and counsel, advice, perspective. And so I highly recommend that if you don't currently have a personal board of advisors, um, mm. I created it by accident. I didn't even realize I'd done it, but I just started to put people around me and, and they became a bit of a safety net. I, I always felt supported. Some were professional, some were friends, some were uh, experts. And uh, and that was an incredibly important part of my journey of, of having people along the way that coached, guided, mm. gave insight, uh, helped me when I was uh, you know beating myself up or whatever it might've been. Yeah. And uh, personal board of advisors was key. Interesting. And um, so what will you, so um, what advice would you give to your younger self um, that is thinking she is not, maybe she is not good enough or, or uh, what would you tell it to her from, from, from your today? Well, you know, I have, what I'm about to share with you, I would tell myself, but I've also heard it from a number of people that have read the Healing at Work book, hmm. which is, I wish I'd had this book 25, 30 years ago, because what I would tell myself, my younger me starting out my career is, hey, you know, you had some tough experiences when you were small. And as a result of that, your brain and your central nervous system are wired to respond to certain key triggers. And when you get into your career, you can either stay in an unconscious state and deal with all the negative costs of living that life and career, or you can actually have a very different experience by, by, by becoming very aware and conscious of how that past is influencing you and then choosing to do it a different way. And so, oh my gosh, I, I, I can get very emotional when I think about how hard I tried to prove myself for so many years. And, you know, I'll be really and in, in upfront with you. You know, what, one of the things that those of us that are on this unconscious path do, because we can never, we never can completely feel validated because we're looking to other people to do that for us. And so we adopt unhealthy habits to help us feel better about ourselves. And, and that leads to a lot of people having addictions. It could be alcohol, drugs, food, gambling, shopping, working, you know. And I'll admit that I, you know, I'm very fortunate. I've been sober for 17 years. But in my early career, 
I'd go home after work and beat myself up and gosh darn it, if you, you know, crack open a bottle of Chardonnay and I felt, you know, I would numb those mm. feelings of inadequacy. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, I, I'm going to get emotional. <laughs> I can't take back those years mm. and the impact it had on my kids and my, my ex-husband because I was so consumed with trying to get that validation at work. And I just think of the suffering and the missed opportunities. And that's what this book is about, is helping people realize there's a very different way we can live our careers. I can't believe I'm getting this emotional. We don't have to choose unhealthy habits. We can choose different ways of responding when our old triggers and our old fears and beliefs about ourselves are, are coming up. And that's what I would tell myself. I would, I would basically, I wish I'd had the wisdom of all the pain and the opportunity that it can be done very differently 25, 30 years ago. No, I think it's, and, 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 and thank you for sharing that, that, that beautiful moment. I, I do appreciate that because I think even when I was reading the book, as, as a dad, reading a book for a daughter, right? So I get pretty emotional about some of these, some of the incidents that, that you have been through. And, and, and I can relate with maybe, and, and, and as any dad would do, I have aspiration for my daughter. I want her to do things. I, and even for my son. So, but, but, but it's just, it's, it, it's beautiful. Then you, you put it in right in front in a very gory detail for someone to actually realize and live through what you have lived through. And, and, and I could not help you. Uh, thank you enough um, for, for, for showing that, that beautiful piece of vulnerability for others to, to learn from. And I think one thought I was, I was, uh, I, I had when I was reading this is besides the corporate part or the, or the learning part, this could be a good child children book. So it, in a very weird way, right? Because, because, uh, girls have like, they have this, we have a, uh, paternal society in, in many cultures. It's very, very hard. And girls, they often do extra to prove the base, right? Which is pretty, pretty interesting and pretty hard for, for someone. And, and, and what you have, what you have shared, and I showed your book to my wife and, and, and got, got similar response, right? Because how much she has to try to just appear normal that I just am taken for granted uh, in, in, in many aspects. So it was, and many times, uh, I think one thing that was eye opener for me as a dad and as a, as, as a husband is, Many times we just we just overlook these things. We just it's almost like a gift that's given to you, so you don't even think about it. But the other side has to go freaking hoops to to just and and thank you for uh, for sharing that. You're welcome, and and I love how you've described it because the experience that we each have in our lives and our careers is heavily influenced by our gender, our race, our age, our past experiences, all those things. And, you know, so I've had a chance to see both men and women, you know, two thirds doesn't distinguish between men or women, two thirds right. of us. Sometimes. And to your great point, if you are an individual, you know, if you are a woman in a society where men are more um, in the leadership roles, whatever, then some of those core beliefs and issues that we had growing up are amplified even more, mm. you know, so you're, you're a hundred percent right that, um, I think healing at work is, is an important resource for everyone. And, and I think people based on their, their backgrounds and who they are 
will have different different sets of experiences that they are experiencing in their careers that are going to be very different from uh, me as a white woman. I'm going to have a very different career with with my my white um, you know privilege, frankly, mm-hmm. than a colleague of mine who is is not white. And you know, so I, it's just that's a whole another layer of conversation mm-hmm. on this topic. Sure. So, so, so uh, thank you so much. So, um, uh, quickly, and and thank you uh, for being gracious with your time. Uh, sure. So, if if I say some books that has really shaped you, the way you are, or some books that uh, that are really inspiring in your journey, what are some of the books that 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 you like to share with our listeners and viewers? I loved the book uh, by Viktor Frankl, uh, "Man's Search for Meaning." Uh, that book had a big, big impact on me. Um, there's a book that I read as a part of the research for healing at work that had a profound impact on me, which mm-hmm. was Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's book called The Deepest Well. Mm-hmm. That was my first introduction to ACEs, mm-hmm. <clears throat> the Childhood Experiences on Health. At, uh, she was a pediatrician in San Francisco, I believe, and she started to notice a lot of the kids coming into her clinic who had health issues as she started to explore their family situations, that she realized the impact of adverse childhood experiences on health. And uh, the reason why that book connected so personally for me, which you know from reading the book, is that my only sister, my only sibling, died of cancer. Mm-hmm. And I've been a part of the, the longitudinal sibling study where she had her bone marrow transplant for years. And for years and years and years, I would write to them and say, can you please look at the effect in correlation between somebody who has been um, sexually abused mm. in relation to cancer. My sister was diagnosed fourth stage cancer when she was 16. And as you know, she died 10 years later. Mm. And, uh, so Dr. Nadine, Burke's, uh, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris's book had a big impact on me. And then there are many others. I love The Road Less Traveled. Um, I love The Four Agreements. I mean, gosh. Uh, meeting Anxiety at Work Right Now by Chester Elton and Adrian Gostick. I think yeah. it's going to be a really good one. And uh, so, yes, those are a few off the top of my head. Uh, thank you so much. So uh, last but not the least. So if you want our listeners and viewers to take away uh, something from this conversation besides the book, uh, what would that be? What would be your parting thought for, for our listeners and viewers? Uh, I think my parting thought is that um, what I've discovered on my journey is that our our darkest times are our greatest gifts. And our most painful moments and experiences in life are actually, I think, the best teachers of uh, leadership, of personal growth and development, and that if we could somehow find ways to appreciate I hate it when I'm in the middle of it, so don't get me wrong, but honestly, when I think back about my life and my journey and my career, um, some of the greatest leadership lessons came from the most difficult times. So um, with that, thank you. Thank you so, so much for for, um, spending your time with us, sharing your journey and this wonderful gift of a book. And I think uh, I could not thank you enough, uh, again, for being a leader and being a courageous leader to talk about such an important topic. And I hope more leaders should come out and talk about their struggles because I think it's it's essential for other communities to learn and get inspiration from. And and, and thank yeah. you for joining with us. You're always uh, back, uh, welcome on the podcast. Wish you nothing but success on the book. And and thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a fast hour. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh-huh.